Well, good evening, and uh, welcome to this evidence-based dietary and pharmacologic approach to managing patients with hyperkalemia and associated comorbidities. I'm Dr. George Backris from the University of Chicago, and we have a lot of information for you tonight and hopefully some interactions that I hope you'll like. A multidisciplinary and interprofessional approach to best treat hyperkalemia and associated comorbidities, challenging patient case studies. And Dr. Clegg is going to present that to us. Well, thank you so much um, for inviting me to, to give this presentation. This is my passion and my love, and that is trying to help people understand about the importance of potassium in the diet. So we're going to start off with a case. This is a 52-year-old African-American male who presents with muscle weakness and a potassium of six. The patient is notable for having CKD stage four, hypertension with blood pressure of 180 over 92, type two diabetes, and he's constipated. His medications include a RAS blocker for his hypertension and insulin for diabetes. What should you do with this patient? Should you A, discontinue the RAS blocker for his hypertension and find a replacement therapy? I think Dr. Backer was just encouraged us not to do that. So, but uh, again, that's an option. B, should we initiate dialysis since his kidney function is declining? C, do we refer the patient to a nutritionist to be counseled on reducing dietary sources of potassium? Or D, do we continue the RAS blocker, add a diuretic, treat the constipation, and encourage the patient to eat a high potassium diet? So those of you in the audience, I'll let you think about the potential answer for that. And some of you probably have already come up with your favorite, but, but let's talk through this a bit. We're specifically focusing on this case, again, because this individual has a potassium of six. And as Dr. Backerus just indicated to us, that individuals who have declining kidney function, specifically in our patient, um, this, he has CKD stage four, there's an increased incidence of having episodes of hyperkalemia. And of course, you all are aware that the mortality actually increases with an episode of hyperkalemia. So this is why actually when we see a patient come into our clinic and they have an episode of hyperkalemia, we become very concerned. And reflexively, what we've done is we've actually put these individuals on a low potassium diet. So let's talk a little bit about what the constituents of a low potassium diet are. Typically, a low potassium diet is low in fruits. It's also low in vegetables. It has lower restricted amounts of nuts, beans, and whole grains. Unfortunately, this diet actually is also low in fiber. And if you remember, our patient already had constipation. Now, the, with the lack of fiber, we're probably going to impact this patient because it also causes intestinal constipation. Unfortunately, this um, diet that we recommend for our patients on who have CKD is also relatively low in vitamins and nutrients, micronutrients specifically. So we're also now going to put our patient at risk for oxidative stress as well as for inflammation. And really what's very confusing to our patients is despite the fact that they've read on the internet and everywhere else that they've ever read that eating a diet that's high in fruits and vegetables is considered to be healthy, yet we're actually asking our patients to eat a relatively unhealthy diet. And this causes a lot of confusion. And the patients typically push back on this. So let's talk a little bit more about why we recommend this. And first, let's remind ourselves that typically when we have a patient such as our case study who has a CKD stage four, we recommend that they consume about between two and four mil or two to four grams of potassium a day. I want you to remember these numbers very, very carefully. We recommend that they consume between two and four grams of potassium a day. Now, this is beautiful data from the NHANES database, and actually what they've done is they've actually listed potassium as a nutrient of concern. 
they don't list it as a nutrient of concern because we're eating too much of it. In actuality, this is a nutrient of concern because we don't eat enough of it. Now, albeit these are individuals like myself who have normal functioning kidneys, but there is a whole host of data that suggests that inadequate dietary potassium is actually associated with hypertension, cardiovascular disease, and osteoporosis and the like. And basically what Anne Haynes has said is that we need to eat more potassium. Again, I give you credit, these are individuals who have normal healthy functioning kidneys. But what Anne Haynes did is they actually analyzed how much potassium an average consumer is actually getting in their diet. And if you notice, an average consumer is taking in between two and three grams of potassium a day. That's exactly what we're already recommending our CKD patients to consume. And why is this important? Well, I think as a nutritionist, what I first need to do is ascertain whether my patient is actually eat, even, eating in, even more potassium than they're, what I currently assume that they're actually taking in. Put a different way, I think we need to do a, a deep dive into their dietary history to find out if we even need to restrict their potassium or if they're already eating a diet that is relatively restricted. I'm going to throw in another caveat here, and that is that these uh, the database for which we actually know the amount of potassium on our food was derived some 20 plus years ago. What we now know is that through climate change and the like, our soil has changed. And there is data now to suggest that actually the foods that we are eating have significantly less potassium than they originally thought that they had. And this is to say, again, that perhaps our patients aren't even eating as much potassium as we think that they might be eating. So this is just a call out that I think that this is my first major point is, let's first assess how much potassium our patient is eating. And I'm gonna make the case even further in this presentation, let's figure out what the food source is where this potassium might be coming from. So again, I'm going to articulate the fact that there are health benefits from eating diets that are enriched in potassium, and this sort of puts us in a catch-22. We know that in, in individuals that have reduced kidney function, that they actually need to be on a diet potentially that is lower in potassium, yet we deprive them of all of the potential health benefits associated with potassium in their diet. But let's take a pause for a moment and actually ask, what is the evidence that dietary potassium restriction actually controls hyperkalemia? Additionally, let's ask the question, does a higher potassium intake cause hyperkalemia? And these are two really important questions. And I'm going to utilize this next slide to sort of articulate, I think, what we know with respect to the data. These are four different studies. And again, I'm going to point out that these studies were done in healthy individuals, but it will help me make the point. The first three studies, actually what they did is they took healthy individuals. They increased significantly the amount of potassium that these individuals had in their diet, but they increased the amount of potassium in their diet by potassium supplements. The first used a potassium chloride supplement. The next is a potassium citrate. And the third is a potassium bicarbonate. And notice that when they gave these individuals with healthy functioning kidneys, a diet that was enriched in potassium, you saw a significant increase or a, an increase in overall serum potassium. This is exactly how the studies were done way back in the day when we discovered that individuals with not healthy functioning kidneys, if they were challenged with diets that contained potassium supplements, there was a significant increase in serum potassium. And this is the foundation for why we believe that we need to avoid potassium in patients who have CKD. This is also supported by this relatively recent study that was uh, published in 2022 
by these investigators where they found that if they gave these individuals with CKD a potassium chloride supplement, you actually saw a significant increase in serum potassium as well as urine potassium. So this again would suggest then, yes, individuals who have functioning, not have poorly functioning kidneys, we should restrict the amount of potassium they're getting from this potassium source. However, let's look at, go back and look at this, these data again. If you notice the fourth study, they actually gave the individuals a significant increase in potassium, but this came from their diet. And notice of all of these studies, this is the only study that found a decrease in serum potassium. Does this then suggest the form in which a person consumes the potassium may have an impact in overall potassium bioavailability and or changes in serum potassium? So what are the data with respect to this? So when we actually look at, this is a study that was done in, in 2010 by Nuri et al. And they actually looked at the a relationship between dietary potassium and serum potassium in hemodialysis patients, and they found that there was no association, such that individuals could eat higher levels of, of potassium in their diet, and yet there was not a significant increase in serum potassium. And again, these are in, individuals who are on hemodialysis. I'm absolutely in love with this study. This is a recent study that was, it was just published in CJSON. This is a study where they took 8,000 individuals. These are European and South American individuals. They gave them food questionnaires and they followed them over four years. And again, they found that dietary intake was not associated with serum potassium increases or with hyperkalemia in these individuals with decreased kidney function. Their bottom line is that there was no significant association between dietary potassium intake and baseline serum potassium levels. So again, this causes us to step back and say, are we doing our patients a benefit by, by encouraging them to eat a diet that is very, very low in potassium? This is a third study that I'd like to highlight. This study actually suggests as, increase, as the intake of potassium increases, there is a reduction in all-cause mortality in patients with CKD. So this would also again suggest that perhaps even giving patients with CKD potassium actually reduces all-cause mortality. So what does this kind of all boil down to? Well, I think it has to do with the form that the potassium comes into the individual. Is it a potassium supplement or is it actually a food source that contains the potassium? And I like to utilize this slide to highlight this point. If you eat a food that actually contains potassium, if it's a fruit or a vegetable, that food source also contains carbohydrates. Those carbohydrates actually stimulate um, your endogenous insulin release because those carbohydrates raise your serum insulin or your serum glucose levels, which then stimulates your endogenous insulin release. That endogenous insulin release then facilitates the potassium uptake into the cells and also facilitates extra renal disposal of that potassium load. This was a study done by Alon et al. that actually showed that potassium supplement, when it was combined with an oral glucose, significantly attenuated the maximum rise of in potassium in hemodialysis patients. Again, this suggests that it's not only just the potassium coming into our bodies, but it's actually the form or, or what other nutrients might be uh, coming in with the same potassium load that really attenuates or changes the overall bioavailability of that potassium. 
This is a recent study as well that actually demonstrated that potassium additives have a significantly higher bioavailability. In this study, they looked at food additives and they, they actually showed that the bioavailability of these food additives to include potassium chloride and the like is about between 90 and 100% where the potassium bioavailability from fruits and vegetables is significantly lower. And I'm borrowing this slide as well as some of the others from a recent presentation that I heard from a colleague um, who I, I just found these data to be absolutely fascinating and her references there below. And this again suggests that the potassium bioavailability is not routinely considered when we actually teach our patients about a low potassium diet. Matter of fact, as a dietitian, I've actually never talked to my patients about the bioavailability of, of the food sources. And I think this is an area that we actually need to start emphasizing to our patients is how are you actually actually taking in the potassium within your diet. This is another uh, a picture that actually demonstrates where potassium food additives might be located. They're actually in our processed breads, in our chips, in our processed meats, in our wine, in our processed juices. They're actually, of course, in the sodium-reduced products. They're actually utilized as stabilizers, preservatives. They also alter the texture and the flavor of the diet. This is another slide that I'm also actually borrowing as well, and I love this. This is showing us these are two diets. They're actually matched for the types of foods eaten. So for example, you can have cereal, or you can have a ham sandwich, you can have a sausage. But what they're trying to demonstrate here is that you can have those that have potassium additives, or you can have exactly the same diet without potassium additives. And the difference in potassium intake is about 1800 milligrams per day. Or if we're utilizing a banana equivalent, that equal, equals about four bananas. So again, it's not necessarily telling our patients to avoid certain foods, but maybe what we need to do is shift the message and tell our patients to actually avoid those that have been supplemented with potassium additives, where we can attribute a higher bioavailability. And it's possible that those are the food sources that are actually causing the spikes in serum potassium, which are so lethal. So here is just another slide demonstrating that there are indeed benefits of having a high potassium diet. But what this slide is actually suggesting, it's a potassium supplement. And I'd like to take that back and actually say it's not potassium supplementation per se, but it's actually incorporating the foods that actually are high in potassium, where I think that we're going to get the greater benefit of having those foods without the, the fear of having these spikes in serum potassium. So this is our case study. Again, I won't belabor the point, but I'd like you again to refer to po the potential answers. I would actually um, posit that I think the preferred answer is actually D, where you actually continue the RAS blocker, you add the diuretic, you treat the constipation, perhaps with one of these binding drugs, and actually you encourage the patient to eat a high potassium diet, but you counsel them on watching for potassium foods that have been enriched with potassium supplements. Instead, you eat an all-natural diet. So then I'd like to end with one final case. And that is that this is a 78-year-old Hispanic male who presents with an elevated creatinine and a serum potassium of 5.5. The patient, again, is notable for CKD stage 4, has hypertension, and is constipated. His medications, again, include a RAS blocker for his hypertension, but this patient was actually given a potassium binder. He was told to eat a plant-based diet, uh, for the cardiovascular benefit, but he was also told at the same time to avoid all high potassium containing foods, which caused the patient in his loving family to step back and say, hmm, what then do I eat? And this patient then was referred to me because he'd lost 10 pounds, 
He had no idea what to eat. He was already a slim individual and he was extremely depressed. So this is just to look at when we talk about plant-based diets, these plant-based diets can vary between being a vegetarian, a vegan, a DASH, a Mediterranean. There's so many different definitions with, with respect to what a plant-based diet is. So what I did with this patient is I actually encouraged them to have a plant-based diet that was more uh, a DASH or Mediterranean diet. They, he was originally encouraged to have a vegan diet, and they were trying to balance the number of, of amino acids coming from all of his plant sources, incredibly complex. So I switched this patient over to a DASH and Mediterranean diet, encouraged them to have some a small amount of actual protein coming from animal sources, and the patient was absolutely thrilled. Significant improvement in overall mood. And so this, again, allows me to make this final point, and that is that plant-based diets tend to be net-based producing. They're high in fiber, they're high in carbohydrates, all of which actually facilitates the uptake of potassium into the cell and probably mitigates an increase in overall serum potassium. Where if you have a meat-based diet, this is net acid producing. It's also low in fiber, low in carbohydrates. And I believe that this level of, you'll have a higher serum potassium spike with a meat-based diet. So this is one of my final slides is then I actually think that we should actually recommend a diet that has some fresh fruits and vegetables. But what we should really avoid is the processed fruits and vegetables. We should encourage our patients to eat a diet that they like one that may contain fruits and vegetables, maybe has some nuts, maybe has some whole grains. This will provide them the benefit of the fiber. This will also provide them the benefit of the vitamins and nutrients, and it will also be a healthy diet. So as a nutritionist, this is the take-home message. I think we need to encourage our patients to have a varied diet, one that has fruits and vegetables. I think we really need to hone in on reducing the intake of processed foods, processed meats, refined carbohydrates, and sweetened beverages. I think we need to encourage our patients as well as us to be involved in shared decision-making where we actually talk to our patients, not blame them for eating a banana, but actually talk to them about what types of foods they might like to eat and see if we can't come to some sort of healthy shared decision-making about the types of foods that we can incorporate in their diet. And I think that we can also complement this then with some of the potassium binders, which will allow our patients to have a higher quality of life, as well as enjoy some of the foods that they might actually enjoy. So Debbie, this is great. Uh, I will tell you, that, uh, and I think I can speak for Matthew as well, we do not have access to someone at our institution that has your level of knowledge and able to put it together in a very simple sort of way. What we have, <clears throat> what we do, is I actually have something from the Kidney Foundation which is a kind of a laundry list of things of, you know, high K, low K, et cetera. And I spend about five minutes going over with the patient. Most clinicians don't have time to do that. And as Matthew has shown us all, people are not that smart when it comes to knowing how much potassium is in food once you get beyond the banana. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think that it's important to have access to this thing. Now you showed some references but I'm just wondering, and I'm going to assume, because dietitians are not paid the way they used to, the availability is not there the way it used to be. And general dietitians, I really don't think have any more than a rudimentary knowledge of potassium in the diet. They certainly can't put together something the way you did. So what advice would you give or what references would you suggest to the audience 
to help them with this? Oh, it's a, such a, it's like a, a packing a, a gigantic ball of, of questions. Um, no, I, I really appreciate your point. And, and as a dietitian, I have to admit that I, I was a, I had been a regional dietitian. I wouldn't have understood all of this either. I wouldn't have ever understood the, the processing of the foods. I wouldn't have necessarily appreciated whether it was paired with a carbohydrate or not. This is sort of like, um, nutrition, 3.0 or something like that. Yeah. Um, right. And so, so, and I know even I would say even the kidney foundation, the materials that we give it just, they're just laundry lists of foods. I think what I'm trying to advocate for is that we have to get away from that, but it's going to take a paradigm shift. We are going to have to first accumulate the data that allows us then to support the notion that we can be more liberalized in our approach. The potassium binders are going to help us with that, but we need to have that, that trial done where we actually are pushing the potassium in the diet at the same time we're covering the patient with the binder. That study has not been done yet. Um, so it still sort of hinders us. But I would say that... Um, you know, I think that more education is going to be the key, uh, but but I really would love to, you know, when you run into those problem patients, send them to someone like myself, so, do something um, so that we can actually really help them, because I think we're sending the wrong, the wrong message to our patients. It's confusing as all get out, and we really need to start changing that that message. So I'm not I, sure if I answered your question, though, because, you know, materials that, that to refer you to, I'm not happy with any of them. <laughs> No, I, I, I wanted you to say that. I, <laughs> I knew that you were going to say that, so I'm not surprised. But I think, I think the problem is, and, and again, for the audience, we're talking now advanced kidney disease and binders and what have you. The concept of a balanced sodium-potassium intake, the, the, all the stuff about low-sodium diets and everything, if you read carefully, even the guidelines, they talk about a low-sodium, higher-potassium diet. In fact, for your own information, higher potassiums, assuming normal kidney function, actually have a vasodilatory effect. They will actually lower blood pressure. So I think it's important to understand the context in which you're talking in. Potassium is not bad. It's the setting with which you're using it in and how you're using it relative to sodium and relative to other things. No, I love your point about the the, the low sodium high. That, that's what's happened with respect to um, our diet is we've actually switched to much more refined foods. They are significantly higher in sodium and lower in potassium, exactly opposite from what we actually should be consuming. And it's that processing. And it, it's, it's unfortunate too, because there's also um, health disparities because a lot of times our patients don't have a large number, a large amount of income. And they're forced then to eat these highly preserved foods because they tend to be the cheapest. And so we're then putting them at a, even a greater disadvantage because we're telling them to avoid the foods that are the cheapest, but those are the only foods that they can afford. So again, we've got some problems to, to overcome. And it needs seasoning to be more interesting. And that's the problem because again, plant-based healthy diets are more expensive and it takes more time to prepare it and make it taste good. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I love the, the fact about the preparing, right? That's the other part that we don't, we don't talk to our patients about, right? Are they having a baked potato or did they boil the potato, get rid of the, the liquid, and they've now had a dialyzed potato? Those two potatoes are completely different with respect to their potassium content. Yeah. And yet I don't think we get into the depth of figuring out how they're actually eating that potato product or even that banana for that, for that matter. Are they eating banana chips, which would have higher 
<laughs> or are they eating the actual fresh banana? And then also our, our food, um, the size of our portions, you know, you can find a banana or you can find a banana. And, and, and I always worry about that whenever I'm asking, oh, did you have a banana? Well, I don't know if it was the jumbo Jethro size banana or if it was a, a normal size banana. So, so for the physicians and the PAs and MPs in the audience, before you throw your hands up and say, oh, my God, I'll never get this. This is way too much. I think you need to get a grip and understand that the basics are here. The medications are per the guidelines that we discussed. They are going to affect your potassium. It has nothing to do with the diet directly. And you do have potassium binders to help you with this. The mastering of the diet, the way we're talking about it now, is a plus on many levels because it's not just the potassium that we're talking about. It's going to be better for the microbiome. It's going to be better for overall cardiovascular health. And so that's a whole separate discussion that uh, we're not going to tackle tonight. But I think I just wanted to make sure you understood that this is even more complicated than you think. And you don't have the help that you should have to do this other than laundry lists, which are available to everybody. But the patient, as Debbie nicely said, um, there are multiple ways to prepare a, a, a potato. And there are going to be different results on how you prepare it. So I think this is an um, important aspect of things that we didn't really get in medical school, that's for sure. So, Matt, I wanted to ask you, of the people that you see in referral coming to you, from other nephrologists, because I know you and I both see people from other nephrologists. What percentage of those people are actually on a binder that should be on a binder, in your opinion? Yeah, I mean, it depends, George. I mean, I have to be honest with you. Um, there are, I mean, from internists, probably very few, from other nephrologists, particularly in my own group, because we use a fair amount of the binders. Yeah. Uh, there are quite a few patients on them. Uh, and they're typically not referred to me because of a potassium concern because they're already on a binder, which solves right. the problem. It may be more complicated blood pressure, rapidly progression, uh, rapid progression of kidney disease, something like that. Um, I still think people in practice, real doctors, not us nephrologists, or us PhD specialized in diet people, I mean, still don't appreciate that there are issues with potassium and that there are mitigation strategies. I think certainly the binders is a real easy way out. Um, and Deb, you know, you've pointed out this and I've known you for years that in fact, the kind of diet we eat is so, so, so very important relative to the change in potassium. And simply saying staying away from bananas and yogurt and watermelon and cantaloupe is not the right answer. Right. Um, I think there are there is much to be learned. And to be honest with you, Deb, what I tell my patients is not avoid potassium, but eat fresh food as yeah. much as you can. Stay away from herbal supplements, which may contain potassium. Stay away from non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, which interfere with the kidney's ability to excrete potassium and eat fresh food. I think that's the most important message that we need to give that's understandable, translatable. But as you said, food deserts, cost, 
flavoring. That's what we're up against. So we we have equanimity there where everybody's on the same page with that. We only have a few minutes left. So I want to bring as a final discussion point, the availability of these agents, because those of us in academia have uh, what I've realized a lot more availability of agents than people that are out in the trenches. So what mechanisms are you aware of, Matt, that can facilitate getting these things other than five lawyers and a prosecutor to uh, the insurance companies? Well, I'm actually in the trenches, George, as you know, uh, like many, if not most of my referring doctors. Uh, you know, many more of the formularies do carry these medicines. Uh, they are much more available. Um, yes, there are situations of prior authorization that I need to work with my assistant to facilitate. Yes, it is time consuming, but I'll be honest with you. If it provides my patients with the opportunity to receive guideline-based medical therapy to slow their heart and kidney disease, it's worth the time for me and my assistant to get the prior auth taken care of. So it is one of the drug classes. There are a few others like SGLT2 inhibitors and GLP-1 RAs and et cetera, et cetera, that where I will make the effort to do the prior auth to be sure the patient can get the medicine. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a major take-home point. These treatments that we're talking about, this is not something that the three of us are doing and you know, we want to get the word out. This has been around for a long time. It's in guidelines. It facilitates guideline-based therapy for people with kidney disease for sure. And I would say for people with heart failure. And so rather than denying them therapy or thinking you're treating them with tincture of lisinopril, uh, use correct dosing and use these agents to help you achieve the correct dosing. And I think that's really the key because I agree with Matt. These are on every hospital formulary that I've known about where I've given grand rounds, they all tell me they're there. So I think it's important to have access to that. And I'm pretty sure that if you're affiliated with a VA, that you would have access to at least one of them. So I, I think that's really the key to, you gotta think about it before you can do it. And as long as you've thought about it, then you can implement it and then you'll get more comfortable the next time and then the next time. And then, you know, things will work out. I couldn't agree more. I just think that, that with the advent of having these binders, we have actually opened up the whole new world to these patients, and it will be so far superior to the one that we've been back in, um, to actually allow them to eat some of the foods that they, they love, or even just not have this antagonistic relationship between the doctor and the patient because you come in with a serum potassium elevated. It will, it's going to be revolutionary. Yeah. I agree. I agree. totally agree, Deb. And I loved your presentation tonight. So I want to thank you both, Dr. Zweer, Dr. Clegg, for joining me tonight so we can talk about this important issue of facilitation of proper therapy, guideline-based therapy, using potassium binders, how to use them, and how to counsel patients.